afternoon. Our next case is Harper versus Hall, and uh, I believe that we will hear from uh, attorneys for the General Assembly. It just seems that a appellate and appellee doesn't quite fit. We've, we've reached an agreement, Your Honor. We uh, may please the court. We reserve five minutes of, uh, for our time, and we understand that they will also be asking for a rebuttal period. Uh, may it please the court, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, Justices. This case, Harper 2, demonstrates that Harper 1 was a failed experiment. And an experiment it was. It created a partisan gerrymandering claim out of whole cloth, out of multiple vague state constitutional provisions that do not say anything about partisanship in redistricting. Doing this while practically ignoring the constitutional provisions that give the legislative branch sole authority over redistricting. Harper one claimed to divine the Holy Grail, a standard by which so-called partisan gerrymandering could be measured and enforced by the courts. But as Harper two demonstrated, that was simply a fool's errand. By the time of Harper II, this court had all but abandoned the only two specific measures it had suggested the legislature use, mean, median, and efficiency gap. And it struck the Senate plan while allowing the House plan, despite no meaningful differences between the two. It seemed to boil down to the fact that the House plan had received a bipartisan vote while the Senate plan did not. But that is not how this court has ever decided constitutional matters. Under these circumstances, Your Honors, we believe that Harper 2 should be withdrawn and Harper 1 overruled. Counsel, what has happened over the course of the past 88 days since we issued our opinion in this case that would mandate and compel a different result? Your Honor, the Harper 2 decision itself mandates and compels a different result because the Harper 2 case shows that Harper 1 was flawed. The rehearing in this matter was based upon the fact, according to a majority of the court members here, that Harper II should be uh, reheard. I'm hearing you say that we should actually go back to Harper I now. Are you using the rehearing of Harper II as a device by which to roll back even Harper I? What our contention, Your Honor, is that Harper II must be reheard because it exposed the flaws in Harper 1, which now should be overruled. Harper 2 is why we're here. Harper 2 was the remedial process, and it purported to apply Harper 1. But what it actually do, did is it showed that Harper 1 was unworkable from the beginning. Harper 1 purported to give some specific measures that the legislature could use in so-called policing, so-called partisan gerrymandering. Harper II then went back on that promise and said, no, we're not going to give you any specific measures. And by the way, legislature, what you did was wrong. It was a heads I win, tails you lose sort of a standard. And now the standard is whatever we want it to be based on a, quote, holistic analysis that the legislature has no possibility of ever following in advance. And so, Your Honor. So, your, your, uh, uh, your, your argument here, I think, helps illuminate a question I had about Moore versus Harper. So, um, the Supreme Court of the United States entered an order in, in the Moore versus Harper case and asked the parties for further briefing on what I understand to be essentially just the final judgment doctrine. And I can understand asking for supplemental briefing on that question because it does seem if if jurisdiction requires a final judgment or decree of a state court, you could look at just what's happening in this case and say, well, that, that doesn't seem to have happened here because we're talking about, we have these two names, Harper 1, Harper 2. There's, there was a decision, Harper 1, that became Moore versus Harper in our nation's highest court. It's still pending there. And here we are, the state court, in the same case, continuing to do things that just doesn't sound, you know, to an ordinary person like there could have been a final judgment or decree. But the the Supreme Court issued a writ of certiorari. It had argument in the case. It's, it didn't seem to be a big part of the case. Um, 
but I can see them struggling with that. But what was strange in the order is they said um, they wanted this briefing because of what this court had done last month in granting rehearing. So in your understanding, is there something about granting rehearing under Rule 31, just a part of our rules of appellate procedure here, state level, that would render uh, what's going on in Moore versus Harper not a final judgment? Not to my knowledge, although, Your Honor, I will be honest, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to do what the U.S. Supreme Court will do. Uh, the, the argument that we've made here to this court, which uh, I think is also applicable in that case, is that the actual judgment in Harper 1, the injunction that enjoined the 2021 plans, that's never been disturbed. That cannot be disturbed uh, because no one ever petitioned to rehear that. Uh, all, what we're simply asking for is to vacate, withdraw Harper 2, which can be withdrawn because the time for rehearing has had not passed, and overrule Harper 1 as precedent. That means this court will be saying the standards in Harper 1, which this court tried to apply in Harper 2 and failed, are no longer applicable. Okay, so I, th I think you've answered my question. This is what I was trying to figure out. So you're not arguing that this court right now in this proceeding is in any way rehearing or reopening the, the decision in Harper 1 that's now being reviewed by the Supreme Court of the United States and Morby Harper. Right. We, 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 we couldn't ask this court to rehear Harper 1. The time has passed. But we are asking the court to overrule Harper 1 because Harper 2 was based on Harper 1. And if Harper 2 is withdrawn, Harper 1 must be overruled. That's our so, position. A, a follow-up I have to that then is there, there's this principle we have in our state court system in North Carolina that goes back, uh, I think, at least 100 years. This, the concept is functus officio, the idea being that when a higher court takes up some issue, all the matters that are embraced by that issue that's now with some higher court um, are removed from the lower courts. So all lower courts are divested of jurisdiction over those issues till the higher court resolves them. And so, for example, we routinely apply that both with the trial courts and with the Court of Appeals here. Um, I'm not aware of this court ever having looked to the Supreme Court of the United States and said, well, under our state principles about functus officio, the Supreme Court of the United States is a higher court for us, but it, that, that doesn't seem to be the case here. I mean, if the, the Supreme Court takes an issue and says, uh, we think that some interpretation of the state constitution by a state court violates the Constitution of the United States, that while that's under consideration, you know, it's certainly a higher court from the perspective of the, of the Supreme Court of the state. Would you, so what I'm trying to understand is, do we have jurisdiction to keep doing things in this case? If, for example, you're saying overrule Harper 1, it seems that doing that would moot Morby Harper. Do we have the authority to, to do that, or are we divested of jurisdiction? And of course, this is only as of the congressional districts, I should highlight, not as to you know, our uh, question of the state um, House and state Senate lines, but what's your position on that? Correct. So no, this, this court certainly has the authority to overrule Harper 1, notwithstanding Moore v. Harper. Uh, again, the, uh, the injunction in joining the 2021 plans has never been disturbed and will never be disturbed by anything we're asking this court to do, and this court does not have to disturb that injunction. And if the U.S. Supreme Court decides that the existence of that injunction gives it a final judgment over which to rule in Moore v. Harper, then the U.S. Supreme Court will do that. But that does not, in our opinion, affect anything this court can or should do or anything that we're asking the court to do. I, I want to make sure I understand the implications of what you're asking us to do in terms of um, overruling or, or essentially um, reversing what we decided in um, Harper One, and and it seems to me important to start from, with what the trial court found as facts in Harper One, because as I understand it, you're not asking us to declare that any of those facts are wrongly found. 
Um, and in, in, the, in Harper One, the trial court found that the 2021 enacted plans resiliently safeguarded electoral advantage for Republicans, ensured that Republicans will retain majorities in North Carolina's congressional district and the General Assembly, even when voters clearly preferred the other party, that they were among the most extreme gerrymanders possible and were carefully crafted for Republican advantage, but more so than 99.999% of possible congressional maps, 99.9% of possible Senate maps, 99.9999% of possible House maps. And we go on in Harper One to, 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 to explore all of the expert testimony that the trial court relied on to come to this conclusion. Um, that based on Dr. Mattingly's analysis, the congressional map is the product of intentional pro-Republican partisan redistricting. Um, and the same types of findings about extreme partisan gerrymandering of all three of these maps. And so you're asking us to say that in spite of those facts, the North Carolina Constitution offers no protection to voters. The North Carolina Constitution does not speak to partisanship and redistricting. Yes, Your Honor. So then that would mean that if the General Assembly had a redistricting criteria that said the partisan makeup of North Carolina's congressional districts must be to elect a congressional delegation that's 11 Republicans and three Democrats, it would be beyond the power of this court to prohibit that. Some things, Your Honor, are beyond the power of this court. Some things are beyond the power of other political, political actors in, this, um, in our system. Uh, the governor cannot veto local bills. Right, but just to be clear, you're saying that we should um, overrule Harper One and advocate that the legislature has free reign to enact legislative districts that give extreme partisan advantage to one political party rather than to, um, as Harper One uh, stipulated, there should be adherence to some measures of fairness. Your Honor, uh, with all due respect, I certainly understand the question. Um, this court does not have the power to address that issue. And part of the reason this court does not have the power to address that issue is because it does not have the tools to answer the question. It tried to do that in Harper One and it failed. And it, was, it failed based on the outcome of Harper Two. Well, l let me ask you then, um, are you not also asking us to overrule Stevenson One and Stevenson Two? Absolutely um, not. Well, but in those cases, particularly Stevenson One, let's talk about the fact that, and, and you say in your brief at page four, the state constitution provides objective restraints on legislative redistricting, mandating that state house and senate districts be of substantially equal population, be contiguous and compact, and not unnecessarily cross county lines. But the word compact is not in the state constitution, is it? No. And so when Stevenson imposed a compactness requirement, um, am I not right that there are, in the Maptitude software, nine different measures of compactness? Stevenson, the Stevenson opinion didn't say which measure should be followed, right? Correct. It didn't say that this is geographic compactness or functional compactness. There wasn't a lot of specificity there. No. It didn't have to be. It, this, well, but if, if there's not specificity in the compactness requirement, which is nowhere, it, the word compactness and a requirement that legislative districts be geographically compact or functionally compact, if there's no mention of compactness in the state constitution, and yet this court in Stevenson had the power to impose a compactness requirement, um, don't we have to say that was wrong and that there was, it was not a judicially manageable standard? It, it never imposed a particular compactness standard. It didn't purport to. Um, and it's never, this court has never struck a map down solely because it didn't meet compactness. Well, but that's exactly what Stevenson 2 did. If you, if you read the, the language in Stevenson 2, the court said, we are, we are finding these districts unconstitutional under the state constitution because they are not sufficiently compact. The, the, the court there was simply affirming the trial court's findings of fact. That the districts were not compact. Correct. Council, can, so can I? Can I just, I do have one more question about Stevenson, if I may. And that is beyond the compactness requirement, didn't Stevenson also impose 
um, despite clear language in the Constitution contemplating multi-member legislative districts, Stevenson said that this court can interpret the state's equal protection clause to prohibit um, multi-member legislative districts. Your Honor, and I have Stevenson right here, and, and you're, you're right and you're wrong it, with regard to the premise of your question. Um, the, the, the Stevenson court said that multi-member districts have often been used to discriminate against African Americans under the VRA. And so they said they can't be used the way they've been used in the past in light of the whole county amendments. They also held that in multi-member districts, oftentimes people get to vote for say five representatives versus one in a single member district. And that's a pretty easy math, five versus one. They didn't have to divine an efficiency gap to say that's not fair. So, so your argument then is that it was fine for the Supreme, North Carolina Supreme Court, despite the clear language of the state constitution, to find in the Equal Protection Clause a prohibition on multi-member districts because it's easier to count them? It is because, number one, because there was a VRA issue and that was, uh, that animated the court's decision quite a bit. I have it here right in front of me. They, they relied on the fact that multi-member districts had been used to discriminate against blacks. That was a very key part of it. They also said, well, hey, it's pretty easy to see if you get five votes, one person gets five votes, one person gets one vote. That's like um, one person, one vote. That's easy math. That doesn't require any political choices. It doesn't require any policy judgments. All it does is require counting. Well, on the question of whether or not this court has ever imposed on redistricting a standard that is um, vague, um, let me ask you to comment on Black, Blackenship versus Bartlett. Because there, in deciding that the Equal Protection Clause of the state constitution requires judicial districts to be um, roughly the same size, Blankenship simply says a plaintiff must make a prima facie showing of considerable disparity between similarly situated districts in order to trigger constitutional review. And then goes on to say judicial districts will be sustained if the legislature's formulation advance important governmental interests unrelated to vote dilution and do not weaken voter strength substantially. How are those phrases, the um, considerable disparity, similarly situated districts, voter strength, substantially, how are those more precise and mathematical than the standards we established in Harper One? The, 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 the Blankenship case was simply a species of the one person, one vote cases, which was very well developed by the time that case came along. And there's lots of standards that historically, historically been developed that are based ultimately on division. Right, but just to be clear, the state's constitutional provision that establishes drawing districts for judicial elections says nothing about one person, one vote, whereas the legislative provision in our state constitution does. That's correct, right? I'm sorry, I didn't follow that. Uh, Article 4, Section 9, that establishes the power to create judicial districts has no one person, one vote requirement in the same way that Article 2, Section 3 and Article 2, Section 5 do have one person, one vote requirements. Right, just like the United States Constitution does not, but the courts have said you have to have equally weighted votes. That's a far cry from using complicated math formulas that rely on political judgments to try to guess at what equal representation is. But in Blankenship, this court did not say the, dis the judicial districts must not have a deviation more than plus or minus 5%. There was no specific metric given, correct? Correct. And so don't we also have to overrule Blankenship? No, because that's a species of the one person, one vote cases, which were very well established and were not groundbreaking in any respect like Harper 1 was, nor was there a follow-on case to Blankenship like Harper 2 was that proved that Blankenship was wrong. Right. So, Counsel, I just wanted to um, kind of circling back to this line of questioning, just the cases that um, you're discussing with Justice Earls, those were all cases in which we were interpreting a provision of our state constitution in light of some restrictions that were coming from federal law. Is that correct? Correct. And that's because of the supremacy clause. It doesn't matter what's in our state constitution. We have to follow first that those federal laws. Correct. What federal laws are we subject to uh, in Harper 1 and in Harper 2 here that you're saying 
are providing any sort of barrier for our interpretation of the state constitution. Right. There, there, there's no federal law that requires this court to recognize partisan gerrymandering. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Obviously, the Rucho case recognized that from a federal perspective, perspective, it's impossible to measure so-called partisan gerrymandering, and therefore, it's non-justiciable under the U.S. Constitution. The very same outcome should hold here. Just like the U.S. Supreme Court in Rucho said there's no fair districts amendment to the U.S. Constitution, there's no fair districts amendment to the North Carolina Constitution. There's no tool for this court to latch onto, like there was in Stevenson with the whole county amendments, there's no tool for this court to latch onto that would give it a standard that, importantly, can actually be followed. The legislature, re remember what happened here. Uh, the, the, the court said it's in Harper 1, well, you've got this uh, you know, basically constitutional, provisionally constitutional um, uh, standard with 0.7 here, 0.1 there, and the legislature, using the Maptitude software that had available to it, did exactly that, and every single map complied with what should have been presumptively constitutional. That should have been the end of the story as it, as it relates to Harper 1. Instead, Harper 2 comes around and says, nope, legislature, you are Charlie Brown, and we, the court, are Lucy. And we're going to take that, and we're going to pull that football right out from under you because we didn't really mean what we said when we thought there was a clear rule that you could follow. And instead, it's going to now be a holistic rule that's going to be based on a bunch of expert reports that we, the court, will decide what the map will look like ultimately based on a constellation, is what the court used, of standards that only we know. That is not fair to the legislature. Uh, that is uprooting the constitutional duty of redistricting from the le legislature, and it is arrogating it to this court and to the trial courts. Look at what the trial court did here. The, the congressional map that was passed by the, the legislature as a remedial plan completely complied with the presumptively constitutional standards this court held in Harper 1, and yet the trial court just decided for still unknown reasons that the congressional map wasn't good enough and the trial court redrew it in derogation of the legislature's authority. And so um, we think that this is a very unique case. This is a unique case because, because this court sped up the proceedings last year. We now have a decision, Harper 2, which helps us look at how did, how did Harper 1 work out. Counsel, you used the term fair a couple of times. And of course, in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 10, talks simply five words, all elections shall be free. In terms of talking about free elections, that also contemplates inherently fair elections. Because the word fair is not in the Constitution, and because you're saying the legislature should be able to decide through political gerrymandering what the district should look like, are you saying that because fair does not appear in the Constitution, that elections don't have to be fair, that it's all right for them to have predetermined outcomes based upon where the legislature decides to draw the lines? The, the elections in North Carolina, uh, North Carolina are fair and they are well run. That has nothing to do with redistricting. It has nothing to do with partisan gerrymandering. There is no standard for partisanship in redistricting in the state constitution. But if I understand your other answers, you were saying that it's not up to the courts to decide where the lines would be fairly drawn because that's left to the legislature irrespective of where the numbers would be, what the metrics are, what the data would show. So from what I understand you're saying, it doesn't really matter whether or not the lines are fairly drawn as long as it's left to the legislature in its own wherewithal where it wants to place the lines. Yeah, Your Honor, with, with all due respect, I would con contend that that question, uh, the premise of which is a tautology, it's circular. Um, it is assuming that there's a standard by which excessive partisanship can be measured and therefore would be unconstitutional and that there is a provision in the Constitution that actually speaks to it, neither of which are true. This court simply doesn't have the authority or, frankly, the judicial tools to answer this question. Just like when 
a local bill gets passed in the legislature that the governor thinks is completely unfair from his perspective, he can't veto it. Not a thing he can do about it. Just because it's not fair doesn't mean that, that this body or any body, any political body, has the authority to deal with that question. Sometimes it's got to be left up to the people. And well, here, this it, is a question that needs to be left up to the people. Except how can it be left up to the people? Because if the maps don't fairly reflect the voting strength of the people of the state, aren't you essentially seeking to prevent voters from exercising control over their own government? Your Honor, again, with respect, that's circular in our opinion. You're well, assuming that you can define what fair is. Well, absolutely, yes. And not assuming it, that's what we found in Harper 1. And the Harper 1 goes through the history of North Carolina's Constitution and the history of the fair, free elections clause and shows how concern about um, unfair, unfair structures that frustrate the democratic will of the people has always been a concern. Your Honor, we, with all due respect, we disagree with that statement. We think that Harper 2 demonstrates that Harper 1 did no such thing. And I would like to yield the balance of my time for rebuttal if that's appropriate, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, Counsel. We'll hear from the next attorney. May it please the court. My name is Lolly Maduri and I represent the Harper plaintiffs and I will be appearing today on behalf of all of plaintiffs. Uh, I will address the legislative defendant's request to rehear Harper 2 and overrule Harper 1. My colleague, Mr. Hirsch, will address the remedial issues that flow from Article 2 of the Constitution and its prohibition against mid-decade redistricting. Uh, and we will reserve collectively five minutes of our time for rebuttal. Over the last year, this court issued two landmark decisions, recognizing that the North Carolina Constitution prohibits partisan gerrymandering that systematically dilutes some North Carolinians' votes and requires that all voters have substantially equal voting power. Now, the legislative defendants play a cynical game, hoping that this newly constituted court will reverse course and abdicate its fundamental duty of judicial review. Let me ask you this. Um, the uh, principle that was uh, articulated in Harper 1, uh, again in Harper 2, um, that's a, a constitutional principle that should apply across the state, correct? That's correct. Um, should it apply to every county? Here what we're looking at, Your Honor, is simply the congressional no, maps. It's a, it's a simple question. If it's a constitutional principle, either it should or should not apply to the counties. The Constitution um, regulates all, um, all state actors within the state. So it should apply to the counties? Yes. What about school boards? Should it apply to school boards? Um, I think it would depend, actually, Your Honor, on the history of the Constitution. Here what we have is in Harper 1, this court went through the history of this court's precedents, the text of the Constitution, the intent of the framers, what, the framing what, what of the you, Constitution. What do, you, what do you think is the, the primary uh, holding? Isn't it that elections should be fair? No, Your Honor, I think the standard here, it flows directly from the Constitution. And what it requires is that all voters have substantially equal voting power. Okay, That's all voters. I, Does that mean in counties and cities as well? Or only statewide? I think it's a principle of the free elections clause that um, elections should reflect the will of the people. I think the specific For counties issue, and cities? I think or counties and cities don't count? I think that the free elections clause requires fair elections in all situations, Your Honor. Okay. So when we look at this, should there be any uh, city councils, county commissioners, county commissions, uh, school boards, should any of these be made up of only one party? Wouldn't it be suspect if any of them are made up of only one party, particularly if you look at the aggregate votes in a county where that might be 45 to 47 percent? And I don't, I don't think it's quite so simple. And the North Carolina Constitution certainly doesn't require proportionality or a direct translation of votes into seats. What it requires is that all voters 
um, have substantially <coughs> equal voting power. That means the opportunity to translate their votes into seats. And so, for example, when uh, Republican, the Republicans garner, say, 51% of the vote, they have a 50% shot of getting 50% of the seats. What the Constitution requires is that when Democrats get 51% of the votes, they have an equal opportunity to secure 50% of the votes. Here, what we saw was that that was quite, quite the opposite of the plans that the General Assembly enacted. For example, with the Senate plan, when Republicans garnered about 50% of the statewide vote, they were going to get consistently 27 to 28 seats. Using for, which elections? Um, a multitude of composites, Your Honor. There were numerous people who looked at this, and it was overall, I think— that decision. I'm sorry, I missed that. Which election set? Who gets to make that policy decision? Sure. That is an evidentiary issue um, in terms of what data sources are relevant, what evidence is relevant. That's a classic evidentiary issue that the if, courts are well-equipped to handle. If the General Assembly comes up with its own election set, should that be given any deference at all? So I think there, um, there isn't deference for particular evidentiary choices. Um, it's for the courts. Choice? Uh, because how you prove the claim, Your Honor, that's an evidentiary choice. Where the legislature is owed deference is in policy choices that don't violate the Constitution. So, for example, um, in a map, if they have chosen to group certain counties together because they have, say, an economic interest that they share, that's a policy decision that should be deferred to, assuming it doesn't otherwise violate the Constitution. And that's what the court did here when it enacted, when it adopted the remedial plans of the special masters for Congress, for example. They specifically said that the alterations to that map should only be to remedy the constitutional violation, and it should otherwise respect the policy choices of the legislature. The where evidence. The, where did the remedial congressional map come from? So uh, the uh, legislative defendants submitted a map, the congressional map, that the court evaluated along with the special masters experts and advisors that they looked at, and then they made alterations to the map the legislative defendants presented, only to bring that map into constitutional compliance to remedy can, the violations. Can judges participate actively in political campaigns, not their own? I'm not sure, Your Honor. I'm not sure I know all of the judicial ethics rules, but perhaps so, the answer is so no. If there were chosen special masters, and advisors that have participated in elections, participated with regard to various, uh, supporting various claims, where they clearly cannot be objective, what standards should a reviewing court have uh, in uh, evaluating uh, this de facto commission? Your Honor, the standard that the trial court applied here was that they presumed the maps that were submitted were constitutional and then they examined whether or not that was true. And they found for some of the maps that that wasn't the case. I think you're referring to the fact that some of the special masters, there was an allegation that they should have been um, removed from the case for whatever reason. Um, both the trial court and this court evaluated that that contention. The advisors, right? The advisors, I'm sorry, not the special masters, the advisors. Um, both the trial court and this court evaluated that issue, um, and they found that that did not affect any of the analyses, and so they weren't to be, uh, just they didn't need to be disqualified. It didn't affect the process. But, but it is true that one of the special masters who drew the congressional, or approved the drawing of the congressional district, actually campaigned for a candidate in that district, in one of the districts that that person drew, or assisted in drawing. Again, Your Honor, the court reviewed these issues and they found that the trial court's decision was supported by competent evidence, and that's the standard by which this court reviews that. So there, there, there's no ethics applicable to the special masters or their assistance? I think the ethical issues here were clearly evaluated. They were considered. The parties briefed it. This court considered them and um, found that the trial court, which was a bipartisan panel appointed by Mr. Chief Justice, um, found that there was no reason to disqualify them. So the trial court said that uh, one of the reasons it felt it did not need to disqualify uh, 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 advisors Wang, Wang and Jarvis was that um, it, uh, their input did not really uh, control the outcome. Is that a fair way to say that? 
I think it's correct that the trial court did not rely on any one individual's assessment to make a determinative finding. That's correct. All right, so let's see what they said in particular then. Um, as they um, looked at the uh, input from the different advisors who then uh, uh, helped the special masters who uh, reported to the three-judge panel, uh, whose job is it to find facts and to weigh credibility? The factual findings are made by the trial court, Your Honor, and this court reviews those um, to see whether or not there was competent evidence to support those factual findings. Of course, the legal conclusions drawn from those factual findings are for this court to review de novo. And the trial court also recognized that the special masters had um, indicated that uh, Wang and Jarvis, uh, that, that their input uh, was not such that it would have uh, controlled the outcome. That's Correct. true. They, they reviewed all of the inputs from the experts as well as the special masters, weighed all of that evidence. No single, no single metric, just as no single individual was determined to be the outcome that they found. Um, when one does averages, does one give equal weight to the input? Your Honor, it's just the definition of averages. I'm sorry, I'm not sure I quite follow the question that you're asking. Okay, if I have four people and uh, average the scores and I get four, have I given equal weight? And each one was one, I average and I get an average of one, have I given equal weight to all four of the inputs? Yeah, I think all of these issues that we're discussing right now, those are evidentiary issues that the trial court was in the right position to look at and make factual findings about. Um, but this the, is precisely why. But the majority overruled them. The majority yeah. made its own fact findings. As a matter of fact, it used averages, which it had not talked about in Harper 1, which by definition gives equal weight to all of the advisors when the special masters had indicated they were not giving equal weight necessarily to all the advisors. Your Honor, the ultimate standard here is whether the voters have substantially equal voting power. The bottom line is that the- Who knows um, that? How, how, how do you determine that? How can the General Assembly determine that, quote, all voters have equal voting power? Was um, the Harper One Court readily explained there are multiple reliable ways of demonstrating the existence of that. Some combination of these metrics, like the ones we're discussing now, um, as well as the, the way in which the votes translate to seats, those are all considerations that go into that, as well as, for example, whether traditional redistricting principles were subordinated to partisanship, which the Harper One Court found here in spades, and as did the trial court in Harper Two for the maps that it did not uphold. Um, well, let's, let's, let's look at what this court did in Harper Two regarding what the trial court did uh, regarding uh, the House and the Senate. Uh, in Harper One, this court said uh, a mean median of less than or equal to one, efficiency gap of less than or equal to seven were presumptively constitutional. But when you look at the averages that the majority used in the House, the mean, mean median was 1.27. That was approved. In the Senate, it was 1.29, two one-hundredths of a percentage. How does that inform anybody that the Senate is an unconstitutional gerrymander, whereas the House is not? Your Honor, what this court made clear with is that no single metric is going to be determinative in that way. The Harper One Court Who said for efficiency. Who knows what the metrics are? Excuse, Who knows me? what the metrics are? The Harper One Court already articulated numerous metrics. The bipartisan. You're talking about Harper One? Yes, correct. Okay. So How many one. judges got Harper wrong, want wrong? I believe that the court collectively got Harper One correct, Your Honor. No. How many judges who tried to apply Harper One? Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, got it wrong. I see what you're saying. So on the, in the remedial process, um, 
the trial court and this court agreed on the outcome for two of the three maps. For both the House map and the congressional map, both courts had no problem reaching the same, conclu reaching the same conclusion as the other one. When it came to the Senate map, the problem was that the trial court's factual findings were not supported by competent evidence. What the, what the evidence showed underlying that map was that it was not, in fact, affording substantially equal voting power to um, all voters. So now, you, don't when they disagree, reversed, you don't disagree that the mean median difference in the efficiency gap uh, measurements, that those measurements uh, were basically, um, well, were uh, uh, somewhat, they were comparable uh, in both the House and Senate re redistricting plans. Whether or not they were comparable, Your Honor, there were key differences between those two maps. Now, the Harper One Court made clear, excuse me? Ar articulate the difference. Oh, certainly. Um, for example, with the uh, Senate map, there was extreme partisan asymmetry uh, between the two maps. According uh, to whom? According to both the special, the, all of the experts in the case, as well as the special advisors. What they were finding that in tied elections, in a tied elections, Republicans were consistently securing 27 to 28 seats out of 50, whereas it would take Democrats to get at least 53% of the vote to even secure half of the seats. That is not partisan asymmetry, that is partisan asymmetry, excuse me, it is not a symmetrical um, outcome there. Did, and did, did Harper One talk about a safe harbor and a presumption of constitutionality? It did, it said there would be a safe harbor when a combination of metrics would show that there was substantially equal voting power. The did identification it, did it not, of Did it not say, did it not say that a mean medium of 1% or less would make it uh, presumptively constitutional. No, Your Honor, what the court said was that those two could be, could be indicative of a presumption of constitutionality absent other evidence. Here, there was extensive other evidence that showed that that wasn't the case. Even if the presumption had applied, the data itself didn't support that presumption. A majority <coughs> of the um, individuals who evaluated that map found that those presumptions weren't even met. Um, and had they been met, the relevant inquiry would have been to look at the rest of the evidence, absent other evidence. That's what the court did here. And I, I'm so sorry, I would like Absolutely. to yield the... I'm really sorry. I did have one uh, question. I know I don't want to eat into your, uh, your friend's time, uh, but I, I felt like I want to give um, your side a chance to respond to something that was filed in the case that we referenced in the order granting rehearing, and that was the um, motion to strike that was asserting legislative defendants' filings were frivolous, and it was stricken from the record. But I heard you say at the beginning you represented all parties, so I wanted to clarify, because I believe only some of the parties um, that you represent chose to file that. Am I, am I correct about that? Are you referring, Your Honor, to the motion to dismiss for rehearing? Um, I, be I believe that may be right. It's been stricken, so I, 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 I might have a copy here. I, th I think it was something filed by Common Cause, I believe. I think my co-counsel will answer your question as he begins. May it please the court, I'm Sam Hirsch. I represent the NCLCV plaintiffs, and I'm here today on behalf of all plaintiffs. Uh, to answer your question very quickly, that was a filing by Common Cause alone. Okay, I, I'll be I just wanted to ask a, a couple questions. I realize you don't represent Common Cause, but I, I just think it's important to, for somebody to be able to respond to some of the language that was in the order. So that, that filing asserted that, that the petition for rehearing was frivolous, which is a very serious accusation. Um, I know in my, I was a appellate practitioner my entire legal career. I vividly remember the only time I was ever forced to assert that um, an opposing party made a frivolous filing. Serious accusation if a lawyer is found to have made a frivolous filing. You, you get an ethical trouble, you'll have to disclose it when you're asking to be admitted to other places. So, it's surprising because I think just a reasonable person reading that filing would see that the arguments that contained within it seem to reveal that it wasn't frivolous. It may be that certainly people feel it's not meritorious, but to say that asking for rehearing within the time that was provided by the rule, in the manner that was provided by the rule, and making an argument that was largely based on a dissent by our Chief Justice asserting that there were points of law that were overlooked in the majority opinion seems to me to be certainly so far away from being frivolous that uh, it's sanctionable to say that it's frivolous. And I know I'm putting you a bit on the spot because you did not sign that and it's not your client, I understand, but do you have a response? Or, or I guess the question I would have for you then is, do you believe or does your client believe that 
what the legislative defendants did here was frivolous. Uh, as you said, my clients did not file that document, and we have some important issues we'd like to discuss with the court under Article Two in the state constitution. So I understand. Thank you for could, the will you answer my, my last question? Of, do you think the petition for rehearing was was frivolous? Uh, I am not here to say that, uh, but I do think but there are some serious. You don't. Problems. You don't think it is? Is that uh, there are some serious problems with it under Article Two, and please, with only eleven. I want to give you that time, but you understand. I you. I just want to understand in case we have to. So I am take I'm, some action with the, to sanction a party. I just want to well, give I, your side an opportunity to respond. So I don't think any. Why, of the parties, why would you? I don't think any of the parties here should be sanctioned, and that's really all I have to say on that. But I really would like to get to the merits of an important part of the petition that my friends filed. All right. And that is addressing the remedial issues that flow from Article Two of the North Carolina Constitution. I plan to spend most of my limited amount of argument time here addressing those issues on the assumption that a majority of this court now disagrees with the arguments just made by my colleague, Ms. Maduri. But first, I want to very briefly describe what would happen if instead you were to reject the legislative defendant's request for relief. In that case, the General Assembly would be free to enact an entirely new congressional plan for future elections and also to draw a new state Senate plan and whatever the General Assembly does would be subject to review by the three-judge panel that Chief Justice Newby appointed. And that panel, in turn, would know that its decisions ultimately could be reviewed by this court. And of course, both the General Assembly and the three-judge panel are well aware of this court's recent order allowing the rehearing petition. What the General Assembly could not do, however, is to enact a new state house plan because this court ruled in Harper II that the House plan is valid and therefore under Article II, Section 5, the House districts must remain unaltered until after the 2030 census. And that ruling at paragraph 94 of Harper II was not criticized or even addressed by the dissent. So we respectfully urge you to affirm the court's prior decision so that the people of North Carolina will face the redrawing of two, but not all three, of the maps used in the last election. Council, since you're talking about uh, remedial and the, essentially the scope of, of Harper II. Um, I wonder if you could address a, a point uh, that uh, or a statement by your, your co-counsel that caused me some concern. If I understood her correctly, she seemed to say or to concede that uh, the principles enunciated in Harper aren't just limited to congressional elections and, and elections for the General Assembly, but also uh, would extend or should extend to county elections and municipal elections. Um, do you know how many municipalities we have in North Carolina? I do not, sir. We have over 500. So uh, are you then inviting uh, our court to take charge of uh, redistricting, not just for Congress, not just for the legislature, but for 100 counties and over 500 municipalities? Your Honor, just as the Equal Protection Clause of the federal constitution applies to all levels of elections, uh, just as the racial gerrymandering doctrine does, just as Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act does, the ruling in Harper 1 applies to all elections because it stems from a constitutional provision that speaks to all elections. Now, I'd like to turn to what Article 2 of the state constitution dictates about the proper result if you disagree with uh, the scenario I just described, and instead withdraw Harper II and overrule Harper I as requested. Now, my argument proceeds in, in four steps, and I'll try to be quick. First, Clause 4 of Sections 3 and 5 of Article II mandate that the 2022 legislative districts, quote, shall remain unaltered until after the next census. Second, even if Clause 4 did not exist, the second sentence in both sections mandates the same outcome under the particular circumstances of this case. Third, the North Carolina general statutes mandate that the 2022 House plan be used not only in 2022, but biennially thereafter until the next census <coughs> renders the plan obsolete. And fourth, even if the court rejects all of our arguments and refuses to leave the 2022 districts unaltered, the court cannot permit or direct the General Assembly to impose new maps rather than the 2021 maps of the general <coughs> that were timely enacted by the General, general uh, by the general Assembly under Article 2. I, I so, believe you left out a key phrase, when established. Yes, let's talk about that. So the, the plain language of Clause 4 <coughs> uh, 
bans mid-decade legislative redistricting by providing that, as Your Honor says, when established, the legislative districts, quote, shall remain unaltered until after the next census. So the 2022 maps have been established for three reasons that we contend may not each be necessary, but collectively are sufficient to render them established. First, the maps were enacted by the General Assembly. Second, they've never been invalidated for violating voters' rights, assuming you withdraw Harper II. And third, and this is really most important, the maps were used in the 2022 elections by election officials, candidates, and the citizens of North Carolina. Now, amazingly, the legislative defendants do not even cite the two cases, Ballard, an early decision of this court, and Covington, a recent decision from the three-judge Middle District of North Carolina, that address Clause 4 and its predecessor. Both cases strongly support our reading of the Constitution. Those cases hold, and this is a quote from Covington at page 443, citing Ballard, the plain and unambiguous language of Clause 4 prohibits the General Assembly from engaging in mid-decade redistricting. Even though, even if, Your Honor, you concluded that those plans were somehow not established, the same result would flow from the second sentence of sections, uh, <coughs> sections three and five. And that sentence provides that the General Assembly at the first regular session after the decennial census of population, quote, <coughs> shall revise the legislative districts. But now, in Pender County, um, we uh, allowed uh, not just Pender County, but the ripple effect of Pender County, uh, which, as I recall, Pender County, I think, was 2007 or eight, and seven. we allowed uh, an, an additional election cycle to go by, but ultimately it's toward the end of that 10-year period, and we did redraw it, or allowed the General Assembly to redraw. Yes. If the court or any court concludes that voters' rights are being in, uh, in, uh, 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 violated by a map, of course the court has the ability to uh, require the redrawing of the map, and of course should give that first opportunity to the General Assembly. So that's what happened there. The court reinterpreted correctly the Voting Rights Act, and that led to redrawing. Uh, however, as I mentioned before, even if you concluded that um, uh, the 2022 maps were not established, the requirement of revising districts at the first regular session post-census uh, is one that exists in many state constitutions around the country, and all of them have said that even absent an express prohibition against mid-decade redistricting, like our Clause 4, uh, that language mandating redistricting after each decennial census impliedly bars mid-decade redistricting. And that includes the Supreme Courts of South Dakota, Kansas, Massachusetts, Alabama, New York, Illinois, Oklahoma. In South Dakota, there had been an express prohibition on mid-decade redistricting and it was removed from the Constitution and the Supreme Court there said, still the same result. Are you, are you familiar with our case, Leonard versus Maxwell? Uh, I'm not sure I am, Your Honor. 1930. 1939 case where the General Assembly had not redrawn the district, districts at all and uh, we didn't step in on that. But uh, if you're not familiar with it, I guess you it's can It's not cited in any of the rehearing uh, petition briefs, so uh, I can't comment to you on that, but would be happy to file a supplemental brief on that if you would like. Um, third, I want to say that the North Carolina General Statutes, this is section 120-2A, expressly state that the 2022 House map divides the state of North Carolina into districts, quote, for the purpose of nominating and electing members of the North Carolina House of Representatives in 2022 and periodically thereafter. So that's the voice of the legislature in state law. And finally, uh, I'm gonna have to reserve the balance of my time, but uh, uh, even if you don't agree with those arguments, there is no basis for saying it is okay for the General Assembly to draw new districts in 2023 or 2024, which is obviously not the first regular session after the census, when you could simply put the 2021 maps back into effect. I reserve the balance of my time. Thank you. Rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, with regard to the remedy issues, Your Honor, our position is that none of the remedial plans, if this court 
agrees with us that this is a non-justiciable political question that should have never been addressed by this court to begin with, then certainly none of the remedial maps that were the process of a court case for which the court had no jurisdiction could ever stand. That would apply to the Senate map, the congressional map, the House map. Um, if but this court is it, Just to follow up on that point, is it your position then, so session law 2022-2 um, and 22-4 for the um, Senate and House respectively, both say in, that, um, in section two of those acts that if the um, uh, decision of, of the Supreme Court is um, otherwise enjoined, made inoperable or ineffective, and in such case, the prior version of General Statutes 120-2A is again effective. So essentially they're saying, if anything happens to the decision pursuant to which we're drawing these maps, then 120, the, the, the 2021 maps are the ones to use. How, how is that, which is a law now passed by the General Assembly, if, if this court has no jurisdiction, how do we have the power to throw that part of the law out? Your Honor, <clears throat> to begin with, I believe that, that uh, some of the language that uh, Your Honor may have not read talks about if a federal court uh, renders it inoperable, et cetera. But it doesn't just... speak to the state Supreme Court, doesn't speak to this situation, which is a rehearing by this court. Uh, in addition, the, the General Assembly made it very clear in those remedial plans that they were only being adopted contingent upon approval by the court or adoption by the court. They were not the legislature's plans in that sense, and the legislature made that clear. As a result, under the mid-decade rule, those plans were never established by the legislature. They were established by the courts. They are court-established, and the legislature should certainly be able to go back and uh, uh, draw new plans without being uh, uh, held to plans that were the product of a non-justiciable case. There's a more fundamental problem here. If this court didn't have jurisdiction to even order the drawing of those plans to begin with, and the General Assembly said, look, we're not, even, we're not doing this except for the court making us do this, then those plans can't stand. And similarly, with regard But I still to want to go back to the 2021 plans because I don't see how this court has the authority. What, what the General Assembly has the power to do is a different question, but it seems to me you're asking this court, and, and the language that I'm reading from doesn't say, or the decision is otherwise enjoined, made inoperable, or effective by a federal court. It just says, or the decision is otherwise enjoined, made inoperable, or ineffective. So, so it references the federal courts before it, that language. Right, but that language itself says if it's otherwise enjoined, otherwise, otherwise enjoined, made inoperable, or ineffective. It doesn't say by who, it just Cor says otherwise. Correct, but it's in the context of a, a statement about the federal court. So, so if we find that this language here makes, makes clear that it was the intent of the General Assembly when passing this bill that if anything, um, didn't require the 2022 maps, they would revert to the 2021 maps. Don't, don't we, aren't we obligated to carry forward the intent of the General Assembly? No, because the General Assembly made it clear that they weren't adopting that but for court approval, that they were doing this under being imposed by an order of the court. Um, and that makes that, as a result, it is not established under the mid-decade rule. I would point out, too, with regard to the Ballard case, the court in Ballard actually held that, that was a political question. Has that, the Ballard case certainly would support our position, not undermine it. And we did cite Leonard B. Maxwell, page 34 of our uh, rehearing brief. And so, uh, to the Chief Justice's point, that case also supports the point we're making about the 2022 plans. And just quickly with regard to the 2021 plans, because those plans were enjoined and there was never a request for rehearing, of that injunction, those plans were never established either. They were never used. They couldn't have been used. They are. They remain under court order, court injunction. Just because this this court were to overrule Harper One does not disturb the actual injunction, the relief that was granted in that particular case. Uh, and we have cited East Carolina Lumber versus West for that proposition. And so, the 2021 plans. Uh, are no longer operable because of the injunction. And Council, so I believe your time's expired. Oh, thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Two points, Your Honors. First, as to the issue that Justice Earls raised, it is exactly the issue that the U.S. Supreme Court confronted in Hunt versus Cromartie. 
the North Carolina General Assembly put similar language into a bill there saying if the 98 plan was struck down, it would go back to the 97 congressional plan. And the US Supreme Court hung its mootness and, and jurisdiction, uh, justiciability decision on exactly that language. So that language is valid and applies, just as Justice Earl said. Significantly, this idea that uh, uh, my colleague uh, from the legislative defendants is saying about how the 2022 maps can't be established because they were done pursuant to a court order is, is uh, in conflict with the history of Article Two. In the 1868 version of the language, uh, it spoke about uh, Senate districts shall be altered uh, uh, by the General Assembly at the first session after every census and shall remain unaltered until the return of another census. So altered and unaltered were used to refer to the legislature's drawing or potential redrawing of legislative districts. Now at that time, of course, uh, judicial redistricting as opposed to legislative districting was not on anyone's radar. Fast forward a century in the late 1960s when the current version of Article II was drafted and uh, put into our Constitution. The framers changed the language and they used the word revise for what the legislature must do in its first regular session after the Council, you're almost out of time. I did have one final question. It, um, you haven't asserted that we lack jurisdiction over review of Harper, the, the reasoning in Harper 1 because it's under review by the Supreme Court of the United States in, in Moore v. Harper. Do you have a view on uh, we, we will be filing uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court on March 20th our views about the relationship between those two cases. I have nothing to add to that. But to go back to my point here. Oh, I'm, I'm a justice on the Supreme Court of North Carolina. We're hearing this case, so I'm asking you for your legal view on that for us. We need to assess that. So I'd ask you what your view is, and we what will, your client's view is. We will submit our, uh, our briefs on the 20th that we file with the U.S. Supreme Court with this court as well. But on the point of whether well, why or not can't you answer my question right now of whether or not you think because we have jurisdiction. There are three sets of plaintiffs here. We must reach agreement. And in the U.S. Supreme Court, there's also the state as a respondent, and we must agree with them. Your Honor, I see my red light is on, but I would like to be able to finish the point about why the 2022 <coughs> maps are established. Ten seconds. The word established was put into the 1967 draft of the Constitution for the same reason it was put into the 1967 2 U.S.C. 2C, which Justice Scalia says encompasses legislative as well as judicial redistricting. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, everyone. Mr. Clark.